0: This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation.
1: Good evening. I'm Alan Havis, provost of Thurgood Marshall College and co-host of the Reconsidering Little Rock Symposium and Celebration. My pleasure to introduce my co-host and my good friend, Stephen Adler, provost of Earl Warren College. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second night of our
2: three-day commemoration of the Signal events that transpired 50 years ago, in September of 1957, at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: Last spring, Provost Adler and I sought to create a means to acknowledge The significant contributions that our college's namesakes Thurgood Marshall and Earl Warren lent to the movement of public school integration. Both men were key players in the landmark 1954 Supreme Court decision Brown v. Board of Education.
2: Although the Brown decision was the trigger for major social change, it was three years later in Little Rock that the nation experienced the first dramatic test case in flesh and blood of the principles that drove the Supreme Court decision.
1: In planning this week, we identified three major elements of focus. One, the path from Brown to Little Rock and the legal legacy of 50 years. Two, the social and educational dimensions of public school desegregation. Three, a performing arts celebration of theater, music, and media inspired by Little Rock.
2: We felt it was essential to bring to campus distinguished keynote speakers of national prominence for the first two nights. Very happily, both Dr. Terence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine, and Mr. Julian Bond, chairman of the NAACP, two formidable and dare I say historic figures in American civil rights, were eager to join us for this event and share their insight about what transpired and perhaps more importantly, what is to come.
1: Introducing the keynote speaker will be San Diego City Council President Pro Tem, the Honorable Anthony Young, who will in turn introduce our distinguished keynote speaker, Julian Bond.
3: Good evening. I want to thank UCSD for inviting me to be a part of this wonderful program, reconsidering Little Rock 50 years after the start of school integration. UCSD should be commended for this, for providing information to the community about a defining moment in United States history and facilitating dialogue on its connection to the current civil rights and educational related issues. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce the legendary civil rights leader, Julian Bond. From his student days to his current chairmanship of the NAACP, Julian Bond has been brilliant, a brilliant figure in the civil rights movement. As an activist who has faced jail for his convictions, as a veteran of more than 20 years of service in the Georgia General Assembly. As a university professor and a writer, he has fought heroically for social change since 1960. He was a founder in 1960 while a student at Morehouse College of Atlanta of the Student Sit-In and Anti-Segregation Organization and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Elected in 1965 to the Georgia House of representatives. Mr. Bond was prevented from taking his seat by members who objected to his opposition of the (laughs) Vietnam War. He was elected to his own vacant seat and unseated again, and seated only after a third election and a unanimous decision of the United States Supreme Court. He was co-chair of a challenge delegation from Georgia to the 1968 Democratic Convention. The challengers were successful in unseating Georgia's regular Democrats, and Bond was nominated for vice president, but had to decline because he was too young. Mr. Bond serves as chairman of the Premier Auto Group Diversity Council, is on the board boards of People of for the American Way, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Council for a Livable World, and the advisory board of the Harvard Business School Initiative on Social Enterprise, among others. He was a commentator on America's Black Forum, the oldest black-owned show in television syndication. His poetry and articles have appeared in numerous publications. He has narrated numerous documentaries, including the Academy Award-winning A Time for Justice, and the prize-winning and critically acclaimed series Eyes on the Prize. Mr. Bond has served since 1998 as chairman of the board of the NAACP, the oldest, largest civil rights organization in the United States. In 2002, he received the prestigious National Freedom Award, Mr. Bond holds 25 honorary degrees, is a distinguished professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and is a professor in history at the University of Virginia. His gracious presence here tonight is a wonderful centerpiece to the commemorative observance of the Little Rock Nine's 50-year anniversary. Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Mr. Julian Bond. And um, now that I've gotten over my nerves of introducing one of the most important persons of the 20th century, I um, h- am able to um, proudly present this resolution of the San Diego City Council uh, to Julian Bond Day, uh, Julian Bond for Julian Bond Day, and we have declared that to, uh, Julian Bond Day in, in, here in the city of San Diego for November Fourteenth, Two Thousand and Seven.
0: Thank you a great deal for that kind introduction, and thank you particularly for making today Julian Bond Day. I want you all to behave yourselves on this day. I would hate to have any of you sully this day by some kind of bad behavior. I appreciate it a great deal, and uh, on its annual celebration, I I hope you'll remember the moments we've spent together. Now, I'm so pleased to receive this, um, and pleased that in the introduction, something was mentioned that often is left out of my introductions, and uh, that is that I, at least at one time, was a poet, and I was reminded of my own poetic background, when someone wanted Dr. Roberts to sign a big picture of the Little Rock Nine seated together. And wanted me to sign the back of a Ray Charles album, don't laugh, on, on which, which there appeared a poem I had written about Ray Charles, and it's a lovely poem. And I went to see Ray Charles many, many years ago at the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles. And uh, he introduced me from the audience, he said, there's a man here who said n- nicer things about me than I could say about myself, and I was just thrilled to have this recognition from Ray Charles, and thrilled that my poetry was mentioned in the introduction. It usually isn't. And I was so moved by all of this that I wanted to recite a poem here tonight. Now, it's really said that, no, you shouldn't explain poetry. The people who hear it either get it or they don't get it but I'll give you a little background to this poetry, this piece. It was written when I was in college, and I lived then in in Georgia in a segregated world, um, and almost never saw white college students, except on the rare occasions when people from my college would be invited to a white college, and we'd generally have to meet in some uh, religious adjunct to the college, the Canterbury Club, the Episcopalian Club, or some Catholic society. Um, And generally, we would drink tea and eat cookies. And when we were parting, one of the white young people would say, if only they were all like you. (laughs) And so I wrote this poem. It goes like this. Look at that girl, shake that thing. We can't all be Martin Luther King. Now, I want, to, I want to examine the state of race in the United States. Those who say that race is history have it exactly backward. History is race. The word America scrambled after all spells, I am race. And America is race from its symbolism to its substance, from its founding by slaveholders to its rending by the Civil War, from Johnny Reb to Jim Crow, from the Ku Klux Klan to Katrina and Gina. President Harry Truman said years ago, Men make history and not the other way around. In periods in which there is no leadership, society stands still. Progress occurs when courageous, skillful leaders seize the opportunity to change things for the better. Two years ago, we observed the 50th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott, the event that introduced Martin Luther King to the world. He was then only 26 years old. But at that early age, and at the early stage of the boycott, King understood its historical significance. Four days after Rosa Parks stood up for justice by sitting down, the boycott began. That evening, At the first boycott mass meeting, King declared, when the history books are written in the future, somebody will have to say, there lived a race of people, a black people, who had the moral courage to stand up for their rights, and thereby they injected a new meaning into the veins of history and civilization. Well, of course, King didn't exaggerate. Montgomery was the beginning of a mass movement that destroyed segregation, and permanently changed our world. Thus, it's no coincidence that two years ago, we also celebrated the 40th anniversary of the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And this year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the integration of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, we look back on these years between Montgomery in 1955 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 with some pride. Dr. King's first national address was at a 1957 prayer pilgrimage at the Lincoln Memorial. In 1963 alone, the year that King, fresh from the battlefields of Birmingham, told the nation about his dream at the March on Washington, there were more than 10,000 anti-racist demonstrations. The result was enactment of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the most sweeping civil rights legislation before or since and our democracy's finest hour. Thus, it is also no coincidence that one side's 2008 presidential field boasts a woman, a black, and an Hispanic. And even the other side's all-white, all-male cast of characters includes a Mormon. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 made our democracy safe from discrimination based on religion, race, ethnicity, or gender. Now, Martin Luther King, of course, was the most famous, the best known of all the modern movement's personalities. But we ought to remember this was a people's movement. It produced leaders of its own. It relied not on the noted, but on the nameless. Not on the famous, but on the faceless. It didn't wait for commands from afar to begin a campaign against injustice. It saw wrong and acted against it. It saw evil and it brought it down. Historian Claiborne Carson writes, Although King played a crucial role in transforming a local boycott into a social justice movement of international significance, he was himself transformed by a movement he did not initiate. Ella Baker put it more succinctly. She said, The movement made Martin rather than Martin making the movement. In Montgomery, the boycott owed its success to what Carson called the self reliant NAACP stalwarts who acted on their own before King could lead. Those were the days when women and men of all backgrounds worked together in the cause of civil rights. Those were the days when good music was popular and when popular music was good. (laughs) Those were the days when the president picked the Supreme Court and not the other way around. Those were the days when we had a war on poverty and not a war on the poor. Those were the days when patriotism was a reason for open-eyed disobedience, not an excuse for blind allegiance. Those were the days when the news media really was fair and balanced, and not just stenographers for the powerful. But those were not the good old days. Dr. King described those days in 1962. He said then, When you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at will, When you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that's just been advertised on television. And when you see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told, fun town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly on tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, when you're plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then, King said, then you would understand. And you would understand that most Southern blacks then could not vote. Most attended inadequate segregated schools if they went at all, many only for a few months each year. Most could not hope to gain an education beyond high school, Most worked as farmers or semi-skilled laborers. Few of them owned the land they farmed or even the homes in which they lived. This was a massive system of racial preferences, enforced by law and enforced by terror. It had one name and one aim only, to crush the human development of a whole population. It began with slave catching in Africa, and it continues on to the present day. It's only by acknowledging the name, the nature, and the scope of this problem that we can measure the magnitude of our successes and the cost of our failures. Now, when the Supreme Court announced in May of 1955 in the second Brown decision that the white South could make haste slowly in dismantling segregated schools, I was one year older than Emmett Till. His death three months after the second Brown decision was much more immediate to me than the court's decision had been. We were nearly the same age when he was murdered in Money, Mississippi for whistling at a white woman. His death had terrified me, but in the fall of 1957, a group of black teenagers encouraged me to put that fear aside. These young people, the nine young women and men who integrated Little Rock Central High School set a high standard of grace and courage under fire as they dared the mobs who surrounded their school. Here I thought, This is what I hope I can be if ever the chance comes my way. The chance to test and prove myself did come my way in 1960 as it came to thousands of other black high school and college students across the South. First through the sit-ins, then in Freedom Rides, then in voter registration and political organizing drives in the rural South, we joined an old movement against white supremacy that had deep, strong roots. Brown v. Board of Education was the movement's greatest legal victory. It changed the legal status of black Americans, and ironically it made challenges to the established movement's now reliance on legal action more possible. As the author Richard Kluger has written, not until the Supreme Court acted in 1954 did the nation acknowledge it had been blaming the black man for what it had done to him. His sentence to second-class citizenship had been commuted the quest for meaningful equality, equality in fact as well as in law, had begun. Now I believe in an integrated America, integrated jobs, homes, and schools. I believe in it enough to have spent most of my life in its elusive pursuit. I think it a legal, moral, political imperative for America, a matter of elemental justice, simple right waged against historic wrong. In a cruel irony, the United States Supreme Court observed the 50th anniversary of Little Rock by gutting Brown v. Board, the historic case which gave birth to Little Rock and was supposed to end school segregation. Until about 25 years ago, remarkable progress toward that goal was made under Brown. From 1954 to 1982, Supreme Court justices of all persuasions, from William Brennan to Lewis Powell to William Rehnquist, agreed that race-conscious integration policies stand in harmony not in tension with Brown. Indeed, for most of us, the notion that race ought not be considered in remedying racial discrimination is ludicrous. Now the ludicrous has become law. The Bush court, on the same day the bald eagle was removed from the endangered species list, removed black children from the law's protection. In two cases from Louisville and Seattle, the court held by a 5-4 to vote that those school systems could not voluntarily use race in assigning students to school. The court ruled that conscious racial integration is the moral equivalent of conscious racial segregation. This is the most radical in a line of cases beginning in the 1980s that question race-conscious policies. Only Justice Kennedy stood between this ruling and total disaster. Four members of the court, the White Ring brothers Scalia and Thomas, and Bush appointees Alito and Roberts, would have prohibited any use of race in remedying school segregation. The truth is, there are no non-racial remedies for racial discrimination. In order to get beyond race, you have to go to race. To suggest racial neutrality as a remedy for racial discrimination is sophistry of the highest order. At a time when school segregation is increasing, a plurality of the court would condemn minority children to secondary status even before they've started secondary school. But we're such a young nation so recently removed from slavery that only my father's generation stands between Julian Bond and human bondage. Like many others, I'm the grandson of a slave. My grandfather was born in 1863 in Kentucky. Freedom didn't come for him until the 13th Amendment was ratified in 1865. He and his mother were property like a horse or a chair. As a young girl, she'd been given away as a wedding present to a new bride. And when that bride became pregnant, her husband, that's my great-grandmother's owner and master, exercised his right to take his wife's slave as his mistress. That union produced two children, one of them my grandfather. At age 15, barely able to read or write, he hitched his tuition, a steer, to a rope, and walked a hundred miles across Kentucky to Berea College, and the college took him in. Berea was opened by abolitionists as an integrated school in 1855. It was closed by the Civil War, but opened again in 1866 with 187 students, 96 blacks, 91 whites. It dared provide a rare commodity in the former slave states, an education that was open to all, to blacks, to whites, to women, and to men. My grandfather belonged to a transcendent generation of black Americans, a generation born into slavery, Freed by the Civil War, a generation determined to make their way as free women and men. Dr. King belonged to another transcendent generation of black Americans, a generation born in segregation, freed from racism's constraints by their own efforts, a generation determined to make their way in freedom. That the quest for meaningful equality, political and economic equity, remains unfulfilled today, that's no indictment of past efforts. Instead, It's testament to our challenge. When my grandfather graduated from Berea in 1892, the college asked him to deliver the commencement address. He said then, The pessimist from his corner looks out on the world of wickedness and sin, and blinded by all that is good or hopeful in the condition and the progress of the human race, bewails the present state of affairs and predicts woeful things for the future. In every cloud he beholds a destructive storm, in every flash of lightning an omen of evil, and in every shadow that falls across his path a lurking foe. He forgets that the clouds also bring life and hope, that the lightning purifies the atmosphere, that shadow and darkness prepare for sunshine and growth, and that hardships and adversity nerve the race as the individual for greater efforts and grander victories. In the first years of the 21st century, We've been tested by hardships and adversity. If my grandfather was right, we're now poised for greater efforts and grander victories. Already our democracy is healthier now than it was last year. We affirmed the words of Theodore Roosevelt, who said in 1918, To announce there must be no criticism of the president, or to stand by the president right or wrong, it's not only unpatriotic and servile, it is morally treasonous to the American public and we sanctified the words of Ohio Senator Robert Taft, and I never thought I'd be quoting Robert Taft. But two weeks after Pearl Harbor was attacked, he said, I believe there can be no doubt that criticism in time of war is essential to the maintenance of any kind of democratic government. What happened on election day one year ago was not an election. It was an intervention. The president saw his presidency repudiated, From the national disaster of Katrina, to which he did not respond, to the disaster in Iraq, which he created. There's no better way to examine the state of race in Bush's America than to examine Katrina and the lessons it has to teach us. Imagine with me a major hurricane hits New Orleans. Imagine within hours the President of the United States is on Air Force One headed for the stricken city. Imagine upon landing in the no-electricity darkness with a flashlight held to his face, the president announces, I am the president of the United States, and I'm here to help you. That actually happened. It was 1965. The president was Lyndon Johnson. Forty years later, a more devastating hurricane strikes New Orleans. Neither the president or any other federal official is there to help. The city sustains lasting damage, and so does the president. But unlike the revolution, Katrina was televised. And what viewers saw was a deluge of degradation and despair. Tens of thousands of people, mostly black, many elderly, many infirm, pleading from rooftops, herded into and around the convention center and the Superdome without food or water, left to rot in the hot sun along the interstate. New Orleans was 63% black, half of whom lived below the poverty line. More than one in three black households, and nearly three in five poor black households, lacked a vehicle. Among white households, only 15% were without a car. So thousands would be stranded, and they would be overwhelmingly black and poor. That was horrendous enough. (coughs) Even worse, that it would take five days before meaningful help would arrive. Some would say, with no apology to Clarence Thomas, that we witnessed a modern-day lynching. In 1935, my parents were living in Louisiana when a neighbor's cousin, Jerome Wilson, was lynched. Writing about the lynching, my father stopped short of arguing that lynching was a deliberate effort to dispossess black slave landholders. He did show, however, that lynching could destroy the work of several generations in a single day. The same, of course, could be said of Katrina. A case in point is New Orleans Lower Ninth Ward, one of the most heavily damaged areas of the city, almost exclusively black. Almost 60% of the Lower Ninth residents owned their homes, compared with 47% in the city as a whole, partly as a result of homes being passed down through generations in this deeply rooted community. Now, as it appears increasingly likely that the Lower Ninth Ward will not be rebuilt, it can be said that Katrina, like lynching, not only destroyed the work of generations in a single day, but is resulting in a deliberate effort to dispossess black landholders. We should bear in mind Katrina did not occur in a vacuum. The Gulf War was not removed from the Gulf course. Katrina served to underscore how the war in Iraq has weakened rather than strengthen our defenses, including our levies. The problem isn't that we can't prosecute a war in the Persian Gulf and protect our citizens on the Gulf Coast here at home. The problem is we cannot do either one. They used September 11th as an excuse to wage war in Iraq. They used the hurricane to wash away decent pay for workers and minority and women-owned businesses. They're using the recovery, they're turning the recovery over to the same no-bid corporate looters who are profiting from the disaster in Iraq. They boasted they wanted to make the government so small it would drown in a bathtub, and in New Orleans it did. That's the first lesson that emerges from Katrina. It teaches us the consequences of anti-government government, under which government's role in protecting its people is limited or destroyed. One of the other lessons, all of which are interconnected, is the highlighting of the racial and class divide in the country. Although New Orleans was unique in many ways, in music, cuisine, and culture, its race and class issues were the American norm and not the exception. And finally, Katrina resulted in a loss of moral authority for the United States, both at home and abroad. We Americans were not the only ones who watched Katrina's disaster unfold on television. The images were seen around the world. If we here at home felt revulsion and shame, imagine what our enemies abroad thought, or even our friends. It's reminiscent of the role segregation played in international politics. In 1946, Secretary of State Dean Acheson wrote, The existence of discrimination against minority groups in this country has an adverse effect on our relations with other countries. Frequently, we find it next to impossible to formulate a satisfactory answer to our critics elsewhere. The Truman administration's brief in 54's Brown v. Education case argued that school desegregation was in the national interest because of foreign policy concerns. But as survivors floundered and bodies floated in New Orleans streets, neither civilized nor secure described our democratic form of government. And viewers here and around the globe wondered, where was that government in the time of these citizens' greatest need? The administration's response to Hurricane Katrina was a gumbo of inaction, insensitivity, and incompetence. Said presidential historian Robert Dalek, the sort of limited commitment that this president has to using federal power to ameliorate domestic problems registered powerfully in the Katrina episode. It triggered Bush's downfall. Not unmindful of this, the administration and its allies have tried to use the California wildfires to rewrite the Katrina story. Arriving in California with alacrity, the President came not only to praise Governor Schwarzenegger, but to bury Louisiana's Governor Blanco. It makes a significant difference, the President said, when you have someone in the State House willing to take the lead. But Katrina was a federal failure. While it's pointless to ask who on an individual basis suffered more, anyone who lost everything by fire or flood is devastated. And its scale and its impact on humanity, Katrina stands alone. It affected 52 million acres, compared with roughly 475,000 consumed by the fires, destroyed 300,000 homes versus 2,000, and it destroyed New Orleans' infrastructure, while San Diego's was largely left intact. The not-so-subtle subtext of the two disasters comparison seems to be that one of them produced better-behaved victims than the other. San Diego County is 60-cent percent white with a 9 percent poverty rate. When Katrina struck, New Orleans was 63% black and had a 28% poverty rate. Those who gathered in Qualcomm Stadium versus those huddled in the Superdome reflected these demographics. Those demographics and the administration's indifference led rapper Kanye West, days after the hurricane, to famously remark on live television, George Bush doesn't like black people. His comment was not off the cuff. It was premeditated and preceded by the following. He said, I hate the way they portray us in the media. You see a black family, it says, they're looting. You see a white family, I'm okay. You see a white family, it says, they're looking for food. And you know it's been five days waiting for help because most of the people are are black. Political scientist Michael Dawson and two colleagues surveyed blacks and whites as to whether West's remarks were unjustified. Only 9% of blacks answered yes, compared with 56% of whites. Dawson also asked whether the government's response would have been faster had the victims been white. 84% of blacks said yes, while only 20% of whites agreed. Similarly, in a Newsweek poll, twice as many blacks as whites, 65% versus 31%, thought the government responded slowly because the victims were black. When Dawson asked whether Katrina showed that racial inequality remained a major problem in the United States, 90% 90% of blacks answered yes, while only 30%, 38% of whites thought so. In turn, this may partially explain why only a minority of whites, 42%, were sympathetic toward those stranded in the wake of Katrina. This blame the victim mentality suggests racial animus. It is closely connected to the ignorance that underlies the surprise expressed by many at the level of inequality on display in the Katrina crisis. Gunnar Myrdal wrote about this white ignorance in An American Dilemma more than six decades ago. He said to an extent, this ignorance is not simply natural, but is part of the opportunistic escape reaction. The ignorance about the Negro is not, it must be stressed, just random lack of interest and knowledge. It is a tense and high-strung restriction and distortion of knowledge. In the region affected by Katrina, more than one million lived in poverty before the storm." Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama are respectively the first, second, eighth poor states in the region. Poverty in the U.S. is not confined to the South, of course. Today, 37 million Americans live in poverty. They represent about 13% of our population, the highest percentage in the developed world. Their number has grown since 2001, with 5.4 million having slipped below the poverty line since George Bush has been in office. And the gap has grown between the haves, the have-mores, and the have-nots. The top 300,000 Americans collectively have as much income as the bottom 150 million. The top 20% of earners take over half the national income, while the bottom 20 get just 3.4%. Black Americans, of course, are more likely to be among the bottom earners than the top. Almost a quarter of black Americans nationwide live below the poverty line, compared to only 8.6% of whites. Almost every social indicator, from birth to death, reflects black-white disparities. Infant mortality rates are 146% higher for blacks. Chances of imprisonment are 447% higher. Rate of death from homicide 521% higher. Lack of health insurance 42% more likely. The proportion with a college degree 60% lower. And the average white American will live five and a half years longer than the average black American. Media images during the Katrina coverage made it obvious that the dying and the suffering were predominantly black and poor. Though some wanted to engage in a race versus class debate, even President Bush acknowledged they were intertwined. In his Jackson Square speech, the president spoke of the deep persistent poverty which exists in our country. That poverty, he said, has its roots in a history of racial discrimination. The truth is that race trumps class. As Michael Dyson has written, concentrated poverty doesn't victimize poor whites in the same way it does poor blacks. That's why comparisons between poor whites and poor blacks in New Orleans clearly showed that poor whites were much better off overall. It's why the public school system served poor whites better than poor blacks. Poor white children were less likely to attend schools in areas of concentrated poverty. It is why three times as many poor blacks as poor whites lacked access to a vehicle. Dr. W. B. Du Bois, one of the founders of the NAACP, was among the first theorists to link class to race. He understood then what we must understand now, that race never stands apart from economic realities. In 1968, the Kerner Commission concluded that white racism was the single most important cause of continued racial inequality in housing, income, employment, education, and life chances between blacks and whites. But by the middle 1970s, the growing number of blacks pressing into traditionally white institutions created a backlash in the discourse over race. Opinion leaders, both inside and outside the government, began to reformulate the terms of the discussion. No longer was the Kerner Commission's finding acceptable. Instead, black behavior came the reason why blacks and whites live in separate worlds. Racism retreated, pathology advanced, and the burden of racial problem solving shifted from racism perpetuators to its victims. The failure of the lesser breeds to enjoy society's fruits became their fault alone. Thus pressure for additional stronger civil rights laws suddenly became special pleading. America's most privileged population, white men, suddenly became a victim class. Aggressive and insatiable blacks were responsible for America's devise. The cause of racial inequality migrated from bigotry and discrimination to individual and group misbehavior, equating race with deficiency. We saw this over and over again in reactions to Katrina. Present day inequality and racial disparities are cumulative. They're the result of racial advantages compounded over time, and they produce racialized patterns of accumulation and disaccumulation. As a result, racial inequality is embedded in the fabric of the post-civil rights movement American society. Another front against racial justice was opened in the mid-1970s, and has gained strength and power ever since. Often led by scholars and academicians, Funded by corporate Americans, this effort, part of the anti-government movement, aimed at removing government regulation from every aspect of our lives, and found a handy hated target in civil rights. Today's apologists argue that discrimination against minorities is no longer a problem. Society has to protect itself from discrimination against the majority instead. They argue that America is colorblind, despite reams of evidence to the contrary including a recent national survey which reported the majority of whites think blacks and Hispanics prefer welfare to work, are lazier, more prone to violence, less intelligent, and less patriotic. It might have been proper yesterday, they maintain, to aim big guns at racism, at segregated schools, segregated ballot boxes. The ills we face today, they say, are crime, teenage pregnancy, and family disintegration. These call, they claim, for new approaches and for abandoning government's help. But poverty's symptoms must not be confused with poverty's causes. Du Bois knew this more than 100 years ago. In his landmark study that became The Philadelphia Negro, published in 1899, he wrote, Men have a right to object to a race so poor and ignorant and inefficient as the mass of Negroes. But if their policy in the past is parent of much of this condition, and if today by shutting black boys and girls out of most avenues of decent employment, their increasing pauperism and vice, then they must hold themselves largely responsible for the deplorable results. Sadly, what was true more than a hundred years ago is still true today. The deplorable results of government conduct and misconduct were on view for all to see in the wake of Katrina. One year after Louisiana's great flood of 1927, Huey Long launched his first campaign for governor. He summarized his platform in a speech under the Evangeline Oak in St. Martinsville, memorialized by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem. He said, it is here under this oak where Evangeline waited for her lover, Gabriel, who never came. This oak is an immortal spot, made so by Longfellow's poem. But Evangeline is not the only one who has waited here in disappointment. Where are the schools you have waited for your children to have that have never come? Where are the roads and the highways you send your money to build that are no nearer now than ever before? Where are the institutions to care for the sick and disabled? Evangeline wept bitter tears in her disappointment, but it lasted only through one lifetime. Your tears in this country, around this oak, have lasted for generations. Give me the chance to dry the eyes of those who still weep here. To dry the eyes of those who still weep here, black, white, young, Old, that is the challenge we face today. For starters, we ought to use Katrina's lessons to recapture the race issue from the political right, to return to a time when whites say, as President Johnson did in 1965, their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, it's really all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And the words of John Hope Franklin who write, All whites benefited from American slavery. All blacks had no rights they could claim as their own. All whites, including the vast majority who owned no slaves, were not only encouraged but authorized to exercise dominion over all slaves, (coughs) thereby adding to the system of control. Even poor whites, Dr. Franklin writes, benefited from the legal advantage they enjoyed over all blacks, as well as from the psychological advantage of having a group beneath them. Most living Americans, he says, do have a connection with slavery. They have inherited the preferential advantage if they are white, and the loathsome disadvantage if they are black, and these positions are virtually as alive today as they were in the 19th century. Now, many Americans maintain, from corporate and government-sponsored pulpits, newspaper op-ed pages, television and radio talk shows, That racial discrimination is an ancient artifact. Acceptance of that argument allows the degradation of the national discourse on race. The substitution of victim for victimizer. The return of social Darwinism to the American scene. The substitution of physiognomy for culture as the bigot's bigot's favorite source of black inferiority. They want to make any government consideration of grace illegal and thereby do away with our rights and much of the legacy of the civil rights movement, including affirmative action. They say they believe in a colorblind America where race doesn't count. Sadly, in America, equal opportunity is color-coded. What they really want is a color-free America, and they think they'll get there by not counting race. But as long as race counts, we've got to count race. Affirmative action was created to what former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor called the unhappy persistence of both the practice and the lingering effects of racial discrimination. Now affirmative action is under attack not because it has failed, but because it succeeded. It helped create the sizable middle class that now constitutes one-third of all black Americans. In the late 1960s, the wages of black women in the textile industry tripled. From 1970 to 1990, the number of black police officers, lawyers, and doctors doubled. Black electricians and college students tripled. Black bank tellers more than quadrupled. The opponents keep telling us that affirmative action carries some kind of stigma that attaches itself to all black people, as if none of us ever felt any stigma in the days before the words of affirmative action were ever uttered. Why don't they ever make that argument about the millions of whites who got into Harvard or Yale because dad was an alumnus? Or what about those who got a good job because dad was president of the company or president of the United States? You never see these people. You never see these people walking around with their heads held low, moaning that everybody in the executive washroom is whispering about how they got their job. Most of our elite commis- professions have long been the near exclusive preserve of white men. I seriously doubt if a single one of these men is suffering low self esteem because he knows everybody knows his race, his gender helped him win his job. Look at it this way. It's the fourth quarter of a football game between the white team and the black team. The white team is ahead 145 to three. The white team owns the ball, the uniforms, the field, the goalpost, and the referees. All of a sudden, the white quarterback, who feels badly about things that happened before he got in the game, turns to the black team and says, hey, fellas, can we just play fair? Well, playing fair here is doublespeak for freezing the status quo in place fixing, permanently fixing inequality as part of American life. Affirmative action, without affirmative action, both white collars and blue collars around black necks will shrink with a huge depressive effect on black income, education, home ownership, and life chances. As quiet as is kept by those who declare themselves colorblind in his name, Martin Luther King supported affirmative action. The civil war that freed my grandfather was fought over whether blacks and whites shared a common humanity. Less than 10 years after it ended, the nation chose sides with the losers and agreed to continue black repression for almost 100 years. The freed slaves found their former masters once again control their fate. American slavery was a human horror of staggering dimensions, a true crime against humanity. The profits it produced endowed great fortunes enriched generations. Its dreadful legacy embraces us all today. 246 years of slavery, followed by a hundred years of state-sanctioned discrimination, reinforced by public and private terror, ended only after a major struggle in 1965. Thus, it has been a short few more than 40 years that all black Americans have exercised the full rights of citizens. A bit more than 40 years since legal segregation was ended nationwide. A bit more than 40 years since the right to register and vote was universally guaranteed, And more, just 40 years and more since the protections of the law and Constitution were officially extended to everyone. And now some are telling us those 40 years have been enough. To believe that is the victory of hope over experience. To believe that is the victory of self-delusion over common sense. A year after the Brown decision, an NAACP activist in Montgomery refused to give up her seat on a city bus so a white man could sit down. Five years after Montgomery, four black young men college students in Greensboro refused to give up their seat at a dime store lunch counter reserved for whites, these small acts of passive resistance to American apartheid and the cumulative acts of tens of thousands more created a people's movement that eliminated legal segregation in less than a decade. We ought not forget that Dr. King stood before and with thousands the people who made the mighty movement what it was. From Jamestown slave pens to Montgomery's boycotted buses, These ordinary women and men labored in obscurity, and from Montgomery forward, they provided the foot soldiers of the Freedom Army. They walked in dignity rather than ride in shame. They faced bombs in Birmingham and mobs in Mississippi. They sat down at lunch counters so others could stand up. They marched, and they organized. Dr. King didn't march from Selma to Montgomery by himself. He didn't speak to an empty field at the March on Washington. There were thousands marching with him and before him and thousands more who did the dirty work that preceded the triumphant march. The successful strategies of yesterday's movement for civil rights were litigation, organization, mobilization, and coalition, all aimed at creating a national constituency for civil rights. Sometimes it is the simplest of ordinary, everyday acts. Sitting at a lunch counter, going to a new school, applying for a marriage license, These can challenge the way we think and act. And the simplest act of citizenship, voting, can change the universe. As one sage put it, status quo is is Latin for the mess we're in. (laughs) It's imperative we change the status quo and fix this mess. And that will not happen until we vote. The other side knows this, which is why they've been so intent on suppressing our votes. To them, U.S. attorneys were fired for not pursuing bogus voter fraud claims. Others may have kept their jobs by prosecuting Democratic voters and officials. In one case, the swing state of Wisconsin was so flimsy, the appeal court took the extraordinary move of ordering the defendant released immediately. Partisanship, not principle, has guided the Bush Department of Justice. There's little reason to hope that a new attorney general, who cannot declare that waterboarding is torture, is going to change the department significantly. This will take a brand new administration. Now we find ourselves refighting old battles we thought already won, facing new problems we've barely begun to acknowledge, we ought to take heart. If there's more to be done, we have more to do it with, much more than those who came before us and who brought us along this far. We have a history of aggressive self-help and volunteerism in church and civic club and neighborhood association, providing scholarships, helping the needy, promoting social service. But volunteering for social service alone does little to change the status quo. Creating change requires challenging power. It's never enough just to ignore evil. It's never enough for us just to do good. It's never enough just to feed the hungry and house the homeless, as commendable as these acts may be. It is helpful to think about our task in this way. Two men are sitting by the river, and to their horror, a baby comes floating down the stream. They jump in the water and save the child, and then to their surprise, another baby comes by. They jump in a second time and rescue that child. And to their horror, a third baby comes down the stream. One of the men jumps in the water a third time. The other man begins to run upstream. Come back, says the man in the water. We've got to save this child. You save it, says the running man. I'm going to find out who's throwing babies in the water, and I'm going to make him stop. Now, I once heard Professor Lonnie Guineer say that racial minorities are like the canaries, that miners used to carry to warn them when the underground air was becoming too toxic to breathe. But too many people today want to put gas masks on the canaries, instead of taking the poison out of the air. Too many people want to put life preservers on the babies, instead of stopping them from being thrown in a dangerous, treacherous flood. We have a long and honorable tradition of social justice in this country. It sends forth the message that when we act together, we can overcome. It's a serious mistake, both tactical and moral, to believe this is a fight that must be or should be waged by black Americans alone. That has never been true in centuries past. It ought not be true in the century unfolding now. Black, yellow, red, and white, all are needed in this fight. All are implicated in the continuation of inequality. It will require our common effort to bring it to an end. Our agenda for this new century must include continuing to litigate, to organize, to mobilize, forming coalitions of the caring and concerned, joining ranks against the comfortable, the callous and the smug. By the year 2050, blacks and Hispanics together will be 40% of the population. Wherever there are others who share our condition and concerns, we must make common cause with them. At the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, We believe colored people come in all colors. Anybody who shares our values is more than welcome. The growth in immigration, the emergence of new and vibrant populations of people of color, holds out great promise and great peril. The promise is that the Coalition for Justice has grown larger and stronger as new allies join the fight. The peril comes from real fears that our common foes will find ways to separate and divide us. It doesn't make sense if blacks and Latinos fight over which of us has the least amount of power. Together we can constitute a mighty force for right. Racial justice, economic equality, world peace, these were the themes that occupied Dr. King's life. They ought to occupy ours today. The NAACP has a magazine called The Crisis. It got its name from a poem by James Russell Lowell called The Present Crisis. He was an ardent abolitionist. He wrote this in 1844 in opposition to the annexation of Texas to the United States as a slave state. This poem, more than a century and a half old, speaks to us today. Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide, in the strife of truth and falsehood, for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light, though the cause of evil prosper. Yet tis truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.